Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Charlie, if we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor. Today I'll be upstairs right after this service. You want to pop into a newcomer's lunch. Last week we kicked off a series called Defined, and it kind of centers around this idea that the culture we live in lies to us. And so every time, every Sunday when we come here and we open the scriptures, we acknowledge the fact that the world we live in doesn't always tell us the truth about the world that God designed. And so the series is really all about seeing what culture says defines us and then saying that Jesus has a different definition. We started last week with this idea that in a culture that loves our stuff, we are not defined like they say by what we have. And today, Pete's going to get up here and he's going to talk about this idea that culture tells us that you're defined by what you do. But Jesus doesn't. There is no greater threat to a gospel of grace than the merit of man. And today, Pete's going to talk about it and walk you through a little bit of Philippians 3. But before we do that, every Sunday, if you're new to CBC, we come here and we acknowledge that the world around us is different than the world that God called us to live in and live out. And the first and foremost place we start as we open some scriptures is this idea that our culture is overwhelmingly critical because we're insecure people. But what the gospel calls us into is not as much of a critical spirit, but one that asks where God is moving. And so we say often around here that the work of the Spirit is inward to critique, not outward towards criticalness. And so we want to talk through today what that looks like. And so we're going to start by recentering our hearts, by praying, by asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us because God is near and here and he loves you. And then we're going to pray for Pete, that he shows us the beauty of God that, that, that works for us. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful, I'm so thankful that we can be here and find a place in the middle of our culture that tells us what we know to be true about how you designed us, about how you designed the world. My prayer this morning is that we show up and see more of the beauty of God. We see more of a God that's worth following. We see more of God that is the only thing worthy of our worship. Holy Spirit, show us the beauty of God today. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to take a couple seconds and, and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning, to show you more of the goodness of God, to show you uh, the beauty of the God that we worship from our scriptures today. And I ask you to pray for Pete, that the Lord uses his preparation to give us a fuller, richer picture of the identity we have in Christ. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. That's right, Pete. Take it away, big guy. Well, good morning. Pete Peterson here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, 
I'm honored to serve here as one of the elders at Crossroads and a member of the teaching team here at CBC. You know, psychologists lump all our needs into two basic categories, security and significance. Security is about physical safety, but perhaps more importantly, about emotional safety, about being accepted, included, belonging. Significance, who we are and what we do, has value, that our lives have meaning. And we prove ourselves capable and competent that we have status. Recently, you all have seen in the news the so-called great resignation, based in part on people's strong feelings of a lack of significance of their work. Last week, Charlie introduced our series and the idea of what defines us, talking about I am what I have. This week, I'm exploring the topic of identity and the lie that says I am what I do. Here's a picture of my Air Force uniform. I didn't show you my face. I wanted to see my face as it is, not the younger face that <clears throat> might, might be at the top of that torso. The color and cut of my uniform means I'm included in the Air Force and in the military. My two-star rank defines who I salute and who salutes me. Pilot wings, not just a pilot, but a command pilot a wreath and a star, a senior transporter badge, lots of ribbons telling about my time and service, operational achievements, operations I was involved in. I had security and significance within the Air Force and perhaps beyond. But it wasn't always that way. From kindergarten through second grade, I attended a small country school, 10 to 12 kids, one teacher, K through eight. I moved the following year to a public school, started third grade there, but to make a long story short, after six weeks, I skipped third grade and went on to fourth. Never an issue with academics, but being the youngest in the class, too slow, too small, Feeling inadequate, but never, never quite enough, physically or socially. Accepted by a few, significant to none, as best I could tell. That feeling changed over time as I got older, particularly as I became a Christ follower at the Air Force Academy and got discipled by the Navigator Ministry there. But even as an adult, there are still times, there were times, and to be honest, there are still times, perhaps even this morning, <clears throat> when I hear that fourth, <clears throat> I hear that fourth grade boy in my head. Not capable, not significant, not enough. Back to the uniform. 38 years in the military, in the Air Force, I retired in 2007 took off the uniform, and with a very few exceptions, it's inappropriate for me to wear now. I had a role as an Air Force officer, a pilot, a leader, significant and important, but I had to remind myself just a role, not my identity, not then, not now. 
Even if you don't wear a uniform, I think you all have similar experience. We live in a society, a meritocracy, where people's perceived status is based on achievement and doing. Busyness is a badge of honor. You've been there. As soon as people ask or know your name, what's the next question? What do you do? And so we find ourselves quickly tempted to fall into that achievement mentality about work, what company I work for, who my leader is, your title, the number of people who work for you. At home, the achievement or success of your children, where you live at the size of your home, your achievement in your hobbies, or I'm treading on thin ice here, golf trophies and handicap. shooting trophies, or painting awards. None of these achievements are bad in and of themselves. God created us to work and to do, but taken to an extreme, we can inadvertently make these achievements into our idol, making them the source of our security and significance, where we put our trust and confidence. But this can be hard for us to see, looking in the mirror, we may find we have some blind spots. A 2019 Barna study asked participants about the perceived importance of status and assigned percentage weights to eight categories that contribute to a person's success or achievement. As you can see in the chart, on average, individuals reported for themselves status was the least important of eight contributors. Education, relationships, character, all three times more important than status. However, when Barna asked the same people how society views contributors to success, they overwhelmingly said society, those people over there, not me, made status more than twice as important as the next category and five to 10 times more important than the others. In another study, despite our confident external Exterior, we often have strong feelings of anxiety. 40% of study participants are anxious about at least one of the four th things you see on the board, including fear of failure and insecurity and identity. And 20%, one in five, experience three or more of these simultaneously. Now, don't raise your hand. Perhaps you identify with one of these on the board. We live in a broken world, great potential to get addicted to what Pastor Tim Keller calls an achievement cycle. We start a new project or assignment. We get a win, dynamite feeling, euphoria, but the feelings fade slowly or quickly. And you hear that fourth grade boy or girl in your head. Got to get the feeling back. Desire, even desperation sets in. Start a new project, a little bigger, a little better, to get that oomph of euphoria, of euphoria that we wanted. But this is a false sense of identity. It's a false sense of security and significance that comes from achieving. The feeling of achieving fades over time, and ultimately, those external achievements can be taken away. You can lose your job, get demoted, get downsized lose a big client or account. In 1995, the Air Force sent me 
to a wing commander training course. They expected I would get wing command in the next 12 months. But in 1996, a list of potential wing commander candidates was published and my name wasn't on it. Taken off the list, not selected. Additionally, physical injury or advanced maturity can prevent participation in sports and other activities or you might experience a prodigal child. From an article, even some in the secular world recognize this lie. This is from a secular article in Fast Company magazine. Of all the subjects we obsess about, success is the one we lie about the most. That success and its cousin money will make us secure. That success and its cousin power will make us important. That success and its cousin fame will make us happy. It's time to tell the truth. Why are our generation's smartest, most talented, most successful people flirting with disaster in record numbers? People are using all their means to get money, power, and glory, and then self-destructing. Maybe they don't want it in the first place or didn't like what they saw when they got there. You'll know this was in 1998, almost 25 years ago. I don't think things have gotten better. The big lie, our egos and culture entice us with big promises of feeling of security, significance. The truth, wrongly ordered doing, seeking our identity from our achievements and credentials will ultimately fail us. Worse, gaining identity often costs us things of far greater value like family and relationships. And worse yet, we might not realize it until it's too late. A couple of years ago, I talked to a young Air Force officer. He was excited. He was a pilot instructor, doing great things, loved flying the airplane, talked a lot about flying. But we talked about his long-term future. And he looked at me after a couple of minutes, and he said, for the first time, I realized that decades down the road, no one will care how I fly the airplane. He at least realized it before it was too late. Today we live in a society wrapped in anxiety, dedicated to the false idol of achievement. Now there's a sheet here somewhere. Sin in a broken world lead to wrongly ordered doing that seeks to see achievement. But this isn't a surprise to God. God created us first in his image. And then and only then, he gave us doing, work and purpose, rightly ordered work and purpose that flowed out of our created identity. God has a better way, a different way than culture, the way of Jesus. Jesus came and died to redeem us, and in doing so to redeem our doing, to release us from slavery, including slavery to the achievement cycle, to give us freedom to serve out of love for God and love for people. The Apostle Paul knew about the achievement idol, although he might not have used those words. Following his three missionary journeys, Paul was ultimately imprisoned in Rome for several years, around 60 to 62 AD. While under house arrest, he penned four letters to four churches his prison letters, including a letter to the church at Philippi. 
Writing to the Philippians, Paul addresses Christian living. Paul says to live as Christ in chapter 1, that a follower of Christ's life is centered on Jesus, and that Christ's followers in chapter 2 have the same mind as Christ. And finally, in Philippians 3 that we'll look at today, Paul provides us with a true solution to our search for God-given identity that provides true security and significance. In these verses, Paul cites four transformations, four from X to Y changes in his thinking and his motivation. Starting in verse 3, Paul says followers of Christ are the true circumcision, indwelt, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We take pride in Christ, not in ourselves. Continuing in verse 3, Paul says Christ's followers are not relying on the externals, on human credentials. Although Paul says he has significant credentials, more than most. A few years ago, I went to work in a defense company. Those who I worked closest with knew that I was a two-star general, but many others I worked with did not, and I chose not to tell them so there wouldn't be any perception of entitlement. On one occasion, the company formed four teams, all led by retired general officers. I was announced as the team leader for the fourth team. On realizing I was a two-star, one coworker, a retired Navy captain, Colonel Equivalent, was, whose office was just down the hall, was pretty upset with me. He'd been calling me by my first name for two years, not realizing I was a general officer. He settled down a bit after I explained my rationale. And by the way, he continued to call me by my first name. In verses 5 and 6, Paul actually lists these human credentials that he was so proud of. Driven by his old thinking, driven by family, culture, religion, these achievements had great, to him had great value before God. Circumcised as a baby, both parents Jewish, his tribe known for its warriors and for Israel's first king, King Saul. A strict Jew both by upbringing and by his own personal choice. A Pharisee, the strictest of all the sects. Zealous for God to the point of persecuting believers. Blameless, not perfect, but doing everything the law required to stay right with God. This was Paul's, I am better than you because of list. You know, we often seek our significance from being better than someone else, but comparison is a trap. I believe most of us can think of at least one person in our lives, don't poke them, don't look at them, that has always been a little ahead of us, a little better, a little faster. My best friend in high school, great guy, great friend still today, he made the varsity basketball team, I did not. He was the valedictorian, I was the salutatorian. A little bit better, a little bit faster. Paul continues looking at verse seven through nine, and this new thinking has brought a new perspective. He saw his old assets now as liabilities. Wrongly ordered doing and achieving through obeying the law had become Paul's idol more important to Paul than knowing God and yet 
preventing Paul from seeing his need for Jesus by presenting a false hope of salvation by works. Paul's achievements weren't inherently bad things, but taken to an extreme, they became Paul's idols. Just as with my uniform, rank, badges, and ribbons, there's nothing bad in what I did in the Air Force. I'm proud to have served, but they can become an idol if I take them as a source of my identity and significance. Paul was transformed by knowing Christ. Paul went from depending on human credentials for significance to depending on knowing Christ, his spiritual credential. And so Paul put his achievements aside, considering them as dung or manure in comparison. Andy reminded me the other day that the Greek word is much more colorful than dung, but I think you get the point. In order to gain Christ, to be found in him, one commentator described gaining Christ as simply meaning that Jesus becomes the dominating power in and over one's being and circumstance. Gaining complete knowledge, both head knowledge as well as heart knowledge. Paul continues in verse 9, not achieving my righteousness by works of law, good works, but receiving, not achieving, but receiving my righteousness from God as a gift through Jesus, his payment of my penalty on the cross. Paul's transformation from achieving and earning his own righteousness to receiving his righteousness, our righteousness, from Christ. And now in verse 10, Paul has a new motivation to know Christ and in that knowing to do three things. First, he wants to experience the power of resurrection, not physical resurrection, not yet at least, but rather the same power that resurrected Jesus at work in Paul through the Holy Spirit, giving glory to God through his life. Previously, Paul's Good works had been aimed about earning God's love and acceptance. Secondly, he wanted to share in his suffering. Share in the Greek is actually the word koinonia, which many of you know is the word for fellowship. Some versions of the Bible talk about having fellowship with Christ's suffering. Suffering in obedience to that which we've been called for, to Christ's death on the cross, to Paul, to minister to the Gentiles, um, across a wide variety of geographical locations. And finally, to be like Jesus in his death, not necessarily crucified on a cross, but completely dedicated to the will of God and that unto death if required. From human credentials that honor and serve self to spiritual credentials that <clears throat> those that honor and glorify our Lord. Redeemed doing and achieving flows out of our appreciation for Jesus' love for us, God's free gift of salvation by grace. And so now in verse 13 and 14, Paul is clear he has a new goal, a goal that he's not yet obtained. Twice he says, I've not yet attained it. But he's single-minded in pursuing it. He's forgetting what lies behind what's in the past good things that might tempt us toward pride, to resting on our laurels, thinking we don't need to trust God. 
or bad things that paralyze us with guilt and despair, fear of trusting God for victory. He was reaching to things ahead, to things in his future, with a goal, a finish line actually in the Greek in mind, striving towards the prize of this upward call of God. Paul was thinking, I believe, about the Olympic Games. After each event, a herald announced the winner, stated his name, the name of his father, the father's name and country, at which time the winner would come forward to receive the prize of a palm branch from the presiding official. The winner was called up to the presiding official. Paul's metaphor is not about the prize because the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God's summons to Paul is summons to us to receive the prize. Paul was transformed from thinking he was blameless in accordance with the law, achievement and earning, to reaching out and receiving the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Rightly ordered doing and achieving flows out of our identity in Christ, sons and daughters of God the Father, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit enabling and empowering us to glorify God and serve others. So as we begin to wrap up this morning, we want to apply Paul's message to the Philippians. So let's look at a couple of questions. Who determines your doing? Paul's answer in chapter 1 of Philippians was to live as Christ. In chapter 3, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul told the church at Corinth that the love of Christ controls me. Over the long term, Paul walked in daily fellowship with Christ, developing his identity in preparation for years of ministry. Are we seeking to know Christ deeply, to be known by him as well, and to grow in Christ-likeness, not to achieve or earn love and acceptance, but out of loving response to the grace we've received? Secondly, what drives your doing? Where is your motivation for doing coming from? In Philippians 3.14, God's motivation was the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul told the church in Corinth that those who live in Christ should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. Are we willing to follow Jesus daily for the purpose of serving others, showing others the goodness of God, or is there someone or something else that's driving our doing? In 1996, I go back a little ways, facing the frustration of losing my initial opportunity for wing command, I ultimately had to decide what was really driving me. Was it to be a Christ follower, trusting God's sovereignty regardless of my Air Force job, or something else, like my desire for command? In God's grace, I was able to choose following Christ. Or perhaps something's interfering with your motivation. Please don't let that fourth grade boy or girl in your head get in the way of your serving. Finally, where is your doing? Paul told the Ephesians, we're saved by grace, not by works. We know that verse very well. 
And Paul continues in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. What did Paul's spiritual growth journey look like? I found a quote from N.T. Wright who said this, Yes, Jesus dramatically converted Saul to Paul, but Jesus did not dramatically change Paul's personality. Saul seems to have been arrogant, driven, and well-organized before he got converted. Following Jesus, transformed and sanctified those things, but in Paul's letters, you can still see them shining through. Jesus also used the training, the background, and the abilities Paul had for ministry. So what about you? What are your unique giftings and experience? If you know them, how and where might they be applied to service, either here at Crossroads or outside in our community? Or if you're not sure if you know them, have a coffee or a soda with a mature believer you know and trust. Talk to them about how God has been at work in your life and ask for their insight as to where your giftings and your experience might fit in. As individuals and believers, as a church body, our identity in Christ is firmly established, not defined by culture's view of power and status through achievement, but rather defined by our identity in Christ, not enslaved by the idol of achievement, but free to serve in a loving response. We're created in God's image, sons and daughters of God, saved by grace through Christ's finished work on the cross. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, following our identity, empowered by the Spirit, that our culture around us might clearly see God's goodness and his faithfulness through our service to him and to others. The bottom line, rightly ordered, doing and achieving, flows out of our identity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for giving us Paul's testimony this morning, his testimony regarding rightly ordered doing. Thanks for making us new creations in Christ. May we rest in our identity in you, Jesus, as sons and daughters, loved by God. And may all of our good works, our doing and achieving, flow out of our identity in Christ so that like Paul, in response to your love and grace, we will strive to receive your upward call in Christ Jesus, always for the purpose of glorifying you, not ourselves, and serving others, that we might shine as lights in the midst of a culture that is often unseen. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen. <laughs>